You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Verses 12 through 16 together. The Apostle says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we bow before you because we know that without the enabling of your grace that we are not able in and of ourselves to understand your word or to apply your word, or to obey it. So we ask for that grace to be extended to us this morning, that our time spent here would be profitable to the end of glorifying you and equipping us by your word. We pray that you would manifest yourself today through your word and reveal yourself to us in your word and give us the grace to honor you and obey you through it. We ask all of this to your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I said something last week that I want to um, expand upon a little bit. I made the statement that if the Apostle Paul were alive today, I think he would be a sports fan. And some of you looked at me like you appreciated that and agreed with that. Others of you looked at me like a dog hearing a high-pitched whistle and wondered where in the world I would come up with such a thing. Let me expand upon that just a little bit. By sports fan, I don't mean that the Apostle Paul would be the big heavyset guy who takes his shirt off at 10 degrees below zero and and paints his upper body with his favorite team colors, which would be gold and maroon, without a doubt. You laugh. I don't know why you laugh, because if heaven is paved with streets of gold, and the Bible mentions gold so many times, it would only make sense that God's favorite team would have something to do with prospectors and gold in 1849. And you certainly cannot think for a moment that God's favorite team would be the Seahawks, since a Seahawk is an unclean bird. And if we lived under the Old Testament dispensation, you would not even be allowed to touch the Seahawk, let alone worship that bird the way some of you do. So I don't mean that the Apostle Paul would be that type of a sports fan. And now some of you are wondering, we have never heard Scripture twisted like that in this church. And we've been here 10 years. (laughs) That's enough, okay. Not that the Apostle Paul was that type of sports fan, but what I mean is that the Apostle Paul had a knowledge and an understanding of the sports of his day And he had an appreciation for athleticism and athletes and sports and competition and discipline and an appreciation for the hard work that went into being an athlete and competing for a prize. And he mentioned sports analogies so often in his writings that you cannot help but conclude that he was familiar with at least the basic principles of the athletics of his day. He uses sports as an analogy of the Christian life and applies different sporting metaphors to draw out different aspects of what it means to be a Christian and to pursue a prize. Let me give you a few of those references. Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Pale is the word, and it means literally to struggle 
or to fight. And the Apostle Paul even uses the fighting metaphor at the end of his life to describe his own life, saying, I have fought the good fight. He's not talking about just a sort of a sparring, but he's referencing the boxing matches, the fighting matches of his day. I think if the Apostle Paul was alive today, he would have an appreciation for football, basketball, baseball, and boxing. I think he would appreciate all of those. He would appreciate the athleticism. He would appreciate the hard work and the discipline that went into the lives of those athletes. The Apostle Paul does not anywhere in his writings compare the Christian life to crocheting or sewing or knitting or gardening or sitting in a hammock. He uses athletic metaphors to picture for us what it means to run a race. And one of the favorite metaphors that the Apostle Paul uses is that of running. I do not consider my own life on any account as dear to myself in order that I may what? Finish my course. It's a running metaphor. I have finished my course. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Galatians chapter 2. Paul feared that he might have run in vain. He even asked the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Running and, and being athletic was part of a good metaphor of what it means to be a Christian and to pursue a prize and to run a race. And the Apostle Paul used it from time to time. Running is one of his favorite metaphors. And why do we run? Why does somebody compete? Why does an athlete, an athlete compete? First Corinthians chapter 9, which Chad read for the Scripture reading this morning, the Apostle Paul heaps all of these metaphors, running and the games and competing and discipline and all of that into one passage where he sort of combines all of them and he describes the discipline that is needed for running well the race that is before us. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to the end of the chapter, Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but only one receives the prize? Listen for the athletic metaphors. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games ex exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself would not be disqualified. Boxing, running, competing, the prize, the goal, winning. What did the Apostle Paul like about athletics? I think he appreciated the discipline and all of the athleticism, and I think he appreciated the winning. The winning. Somebody reminded me last week after the sermon of something that Vince Lombardi used to say. Vince Lombardi used to say, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Now, you, when I say that, you had one of two reactions to that statement. You either gave me a mental eye roll in your mind and went, in which case it's safe to say that your team has never won a Super Bowl. <laughs> or, or, you said, yeah, Jim, preach it. That's me. In which case, you're probably a lot like me, and you enjoy watching the discipline you enjoy admiring the athleticism, whatever sport it might be in. You enjoy watching the skill on display. Because when I see people on a football field or a basketball court, do you know what I see? I see the common grace of a God who gifted an individual with a talent that they are using. Now, whether they're using it for His glory or not, it is still a gift of God's grace to that individual. And I love to see the skill and the discipline that God gives to His creation, to people who are part of His creation. And you know what else I enjoy watching? I enjoy watching some people lose. And I enjoy watching some people win. And if it's an undefeated team from New England, then I really enjoy watching them lose. Now before I alienate everybody that's here, let's jump into Philippians chapter 3. 
where the Apostle Paul is employing an athletic metaphor, that of running again. That of running. This is one of his favorites. We looked last week at this passage just in a general sense and noticed that there are parallel phrases at the beginning of uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 12 is the statement of the principle. 13 and 14 expand upon verse 12. The first phrase had to deal with the mindset of the runner. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having obtained it. I don't view myself as being perfect. And what we saw was that that was the humble mindset, that realistic mindset, which looks at ourselves the way we are in this life and says, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm not faultless and I can never reach, just as Paul never did, a plateau where he no longer sinned, no longer was tempted, no longer struggled with sin. That is not available to us here. We are, as long as we are in these fleshly bodies, going to be prone to temptation. We are going to be tempted by sin. We are going to fail. We are going to do things that dishonor God. That is an inevitability. And the process of sanctification is that we grow in our holiness so that those failings and those faults become less and less frequent and less and less intense. And we do this struggle all the way until we die. Somebody asked me last week, well, if we're not going to become ever perfect in this life, then why does the Bible say that we should strive for maturity and that we will, we will reach maturity? And I answered that by saying, and I want to distinguish something here, there is a difference between perfection and maturity. You understand that? You can be mature in your faith and in your understanding of Scripture and in your walk with Christ without being perfect. There is a difference between perfection and maturity. Maturity has to do with my application of wisdom, my understanding of truth, and my living out of that truth. But I am, even though you and I may be mature in our faith, that doesn't mean we're going to be morally or spiritually perfect. So we looked at the mindset. And then we saved for this morning the manner of our running, which is what the Apostle Paul addresses next. You'll see in verse 12, look at chapter 3, verse 12. You'll see in verse 12, Paul says, I press on. And then you'll see that he repeats that again down in verse 14. That phrase, I press on, in verse 12, and the expansion of that in verses 13 and 14 describe the manner of our running. How is it that we run this race? How is it that you and I are to pursue Christ's likeness? In the running metaphor, what is it that applies? What is it of the athlete's discipline and focus and, and athleticism? What is that that's parallel to the Christian life? And how do you and I run the race that is set before us? That's what the Apostle Paul answers. The word I press on, it occurs twice. Diako is the Greek word, and it means to run. It means to run, and it means to cause something to flee, to run fast, or to make something else run. That's the idea of it. I run. Now notice that the Apostle Paul is not describing a stroll through a park. He's not describing a walk. He's not describing a jog. He is using a word that meant to exert all of your effort and all of your energy and all of your enthusiasm and every muscle in your body to pursue something and to run after it. So that does away with all of the let go, let God mentality. That does away with all of the, uh, of the lackadaisical, sort of lethargic, apathetic approach to the Christian life. If you are not running after Christ-likeness, then something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with your spiritual life. Something is wrong with your passions. Something is wrong with your enthusiasm. There's something that needs to be diagnosed if you're not running after the prize. We run. What occurs in verse 13, those three phrases, describe for us three things, three ways of running. Three things, three 
That's the word I'm looking for. Three descriptions of our running. First, Paul says, one thing I do. I love that phrase. I could preach a whole sermon on it. I'm not going to. You're welcome. But I love that phrase, this one thing I do. That describes a singular focus. Second, the Apostle Paul says, forgetting what is behind me, that describes a selective forgetfulness. And then reaching forward to what lies ahead describes a stretching forward. So a singular focus, a selective forgetfulness, and a stretching forward. Those are the three things that describe our running. So let's look at each three of those. This one thing I do. Now you'll notice in your translation the words I do are in italics probably. It's because they were added by the translators to sort of make the the text flow a little bit, to make sense of the text. It's just, the Apostle Paul just says one thing. One thing. It's an interjection. It's a staccato, a very brief, a sort of an interjection there that is intended to catch our attention, snap our attention, and really convey the singularity of his focus. This one thing It's a singular focus. When the Apostle Paul was running, he wasn't running after a hundred different things. He wasn't running in ten different directions. He wasn't pursuing everything that was available to him. The Apostle Paul says, like he is able to do, I am able to boil it down to this one thing. That's the singularity of his focus. He was intent upon one thing. What is it? Pursuing Christ-likeness. The prize. When I run, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not running in a bunch of different directions after a bunch of different things, but I'm able to focus my life down and run and pursue this one thing. Now listen, our lives are filled with all kinds of varieties of activities. We go to work, we go to school, we go to play, we go on vacation, we travel, we eat, we cook, we clean, we take care of the house, we love our family, we spend time with our kids, we play sports, we do church activities, we serve the Lord here, we're traveling here, going there, a lot of daily activities that involve a variety of different focuses and things. We're not talking about getting rid of all of those things. And the Apostle Paul is not saying that you and I are to eliminate all of the worthwhile activities or interests in our life. Nor is he describing a simplifying of your life, as if you need to say, you know, I'm really too busy and I need to focus back to just one thing. Nor is the Apostle Paul saying that there's only one thing that is worthy of our time and attention, and that's full-time ministry or prayer and meditation. Look, the Apostle Paul had to wash his clothes and bathe his body and eat and shop for groceries and make to-do lists and visit people and do all of the things that you and I have to do every day. But the Apostle Paul was able to look at his life and all of his activities and say that he was able to hone all of his daily activities to a razor's edge and that razor's edge, which gave his life effectiveness, was able to be summed up in this one word. I run after just this one thing. In all of his life and in all of his daily activities, everything was honed and focused toward pursuing Christ. See, spending time with your family and your kids and doing all the daily activities, none of that is wrong in and of itself. All of that is good. All of that is necessary. And we're not talking about eliminating any of that. What are we talking about? Honing all of that so that all of it is aimed at glorifying Jesus Christ, knowing Christ, and becoming more like Christ. That's the one thing that Paul was after. You and I recognize the wisdom of this all the time, don't we? You see this in life. A man who is a master of one trade will provide for himself and his wife and his seven kids. But a master, a man who dabbles in a dozen different trades and really is a master of nothing will have difficulty providing for even himself. 
Why is that? Because he might be able to do a lot of things, but he doesn't do anything well. And nobody wants to pay good money to provide for somebody who doesn't do anything well. He can do a lot of things poorly, but nothing well. We see this in the area of courtship. What do you think of a man who pursues six different women at the same time without any commitment to any one of them? You think that's noble? Pity the woman who actually loves such a man and is willing to marry such a man. That's not noble. How about the athlete? You know, athletes don't pursue skills in four different areas of sports. Let me give you an athletics metaphor since we're talking about athletic metaphors. And I'll just give you an athlete that I'm very familiar with. The the best receiver who's ever played football. <laughs> Some of you are starting to laugh already. I haven't even got to the joke. The best receiver who has ever played football beyond any shadow of a doubt is Jerry Rice. Now, I've watched a lot of documentaries on Jerry Rice. You may not like Jerry Rice. You may, he may not have played for your team. I'm sorry to hear that. But he is by far the best receiver who's ever played. Played for the best quarterback who's ever played in the National Football League. For the best team, arguably, who's ever played in the National Football League. But I digress. The best receiver who's ever played in the National Football League by far, Jerry Rice. Now, you ask the people who played with Jerry Rice, what do you think of his work ethic? And you know what they'll tell you? He was on the field hours before anybody else showed up for practice, and he was on the field hours after all of the the helpers had put away all the balls and the equipment. His off-season training regimen, diet, exercise schedule was more intense than his on-season training regimen. Why? He had more time off-season to train and to hone his skills. Now, while all of his colleagues were off uh, arranging dogfighting matches and drive-by shootings, Jerry Rice was running up hills and disciplining himself to become the very best athlete in his particular skill. And he didn't worry about how well he could hit a ball for a home run or slam dunk a basketball, but he was a this-one-thing-I-do type of athlete. He wanted to be the best receiver, not the best quarterback in receiver, not the best quarterback running back in receiver, but the best receiver that he could be. Because he focused all of his attention on this one thing. That is the idea behind the singularity of focus. You and I have to hone everything in our life, all of our daily activities, all of our skills and disciplines to be a this one thing I do person. I am going to pursue Christ and knowing Him and Christ-likeness with everything I have. That's the singularity of focus. The Apostle Paul could say, for me to live as Christ. That's all he's saying right here, the same thing. For me to live as Christ, this one thing I do. I want to be like Him, I want to know Him, and I want to know Him better. And so everything in my life obeys that one priority. And listen, if you have things in your life that don't contribute to that, then i got to ask you, what are you doing with them? In your entertainment, in your music, in what you see, in what you do, in your activities, everything should be to His glory. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all to His glory to know Him better. That's the this one thing. Now, how do you do that? That means you love your wife, submit to your husband like Christ does the church. You love your wife like Christ does, sorry, you submit to your husband like the church does to Christ. You love your wife like Christ loves the church. You discipline your children, the fear and admonition of the Lord. You raise your kids. You be a good boss. You be a good employer. You be a good business owner. You be a contributor to your community, your society, your, your government, your uh, community, and your neighborhood in which you live. You love people. You serve Christ. Everything you do, all of it, is geared to that one thing. Singularity of focus. Second, a selective forgetfulness. A selective forgetfulness. Forgetting those things which are behind me. Forgetting those things which are behind me. The word forgetting means to neglect, to overlook, to not care about, 
to simply have it go out of your mind? What were the things behind the Apostle Paul? Before we can apply this passage of Scripture, we have to figure out, what are the things that he is forgetting? Now, some people say, well, the Apostle Paul obviously here means all the bad experiences that I've had. My dad beat me when I was a child. I was neglected when I was a child. I had this bad dating experience when I was a teenager. All of those things I just forget. Well, I think it does apply in a sense, as you're going to see, to negative things that have happened in our lives. But I don't think that that captures everything. Some people suggest that the things behind that Paul was forgetting were the advantages that are mentioned in verses 4 through 6. Being of the tribe of Benjamin and all of those things that he once placed his confidence and trust in, as if the Apostle Paul is saying, I forgot all of those things. Some people suggest that what he is trying to forget, the things that are behind him, has to do with his career as a persecutor, that he once persecuted the church of God. As if the Apostle Paul is trying to get that out of his mind and he wants to not dwell on that. I think all of those things, anything that has to do with Paul's pre-Christian experience or life, they don't quite capture the essence. This is a running metaphor. It's a race metaphor. And so let me ask you this. When did the race begin for Paul? On the Damascus Road when he was converted is when his race began. When is his race going to end? When he dies. So what does the racing analogy refer to? I don't, I forget those things which are behind refers to a runner who does not look back at the course that is just behind him. It's not dealing with things that were necessarily before I became a Christian, although a lot of us would like to forget a lot of things that we did before we became a Christian, and that's fair. But that's not what the analogy refers to. The analogy refers to the amount of the course, the race, that Paul had already run. He wants to not remember or not look back upon and not dwell upon that part of the race that he had already completed. Imagine, if you will, a runner who when the gun starts, he runs halfway around the track and he stops halfway around and then pauses to look back and to see how far ahead of the competition he is, how much of the course he has covered so far, how many hurdles he's jumped to this point. And he said, look at that. When I started, I was clear back there. and Look how far I've come. I've come all the way up to here. And I've, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten hurdles I've jumped since I started this. And I'm a good quarter of a lap ahead of the competition. What do you think is going to happen to such a runner? going to get passed by the runners who are not stopping on the track to look back at all of their achievements and their victories and their accomplishments and anything that might slow them down. In our Awana Games competition, there's a couple of events that we run that have what's called the tag rule. The tag rule, for some kids, is their favorite rule of all the Awana Games competition because it means that if you get tagged while you're running around the circle, you're out. You don't, you don't finish the event. You don't go in for the circle. You don't even go back to your team if you're not near them. You just leave. The, the refs will, will usher you off of the circle right away. They want you to leave the circle and get out because you're done. You're disqualified if you get tagged. So we explain the tag rule to the kids who are competing in Awana games, and then we run through this. And as the kids are running around the circle, guess what they're doing? Looking back to see who's, who's gaining on them. And I have to explain to the kids, don't look back. You ought not to be concerned about the kids who are gaining on you. You ought to be concerned about tagging the runner who's in front of you. So since I'm a coach, when I'm down on the circle, when that event gets ready to start, and the kids come out on the circle, I usually tell one of the kids, look, I want you to tag just two players. You don't have to worry about the third player on the circle, but you just tag two, get two of them out. And what that does, hopefully, is try and remind them, I need to be looking forward. Because if you're looking back, you're going to trip over a pin and disqualify yourself. And it's going to slow you down and somebody's going to tag you and pass you. And you're out and you're going to be disqualified. Why? Because we all understand you can't run forward if you're looking back. It's the same thing applies to the Christian life. 
You cannot run forward like you should if you're constantly pausing to evaluate all of the progress that you've made, how good you have done, and all that the Lord has done through you. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Everything about my race and my course that is behind me is behind me. And I don't turn around and I don't fixate on it. I don't think about it. I don't meditate on it. I don't dwell on it. This is what legalists do. This is what perfectionists do. Legalists look at all of the accomplishments and achievements and victories and successes of their Christian life and they dwell on them constantly because it validates their own pious, pumped-up self-worth image of themselves. That's what legalists do. Think about all the victories that I've had and we chalk them up. And we look back at all the things that we've done and the successes and accomplishments. And if you're not a legalist, you still can be tempted to do this. If you've served the Lord for any period of time, then you know that there are times in serving the Lord when He shows up. And He does something marvelous. And you, you preach a sermon, or you teach a lesson, or you witness to somebody at the job, and you think, man, God showed up. That was awesome. That went well. And then you live off the glow of that for three or four weeks while you do nothing else. That's looking back. You can't do that. You can't live off the glow of past accomplishments. And that's what Paul says. I don't let my mind dwell on those things. I forget them. And I keep pressing on toward the mark. Legalists do that. We can do that when we want to live off the glow of those victories. And by the way, this is one of the dangers of old age. This is one of the dangers of old age. Not very often that I try and address something to people with gray hair because until I have gray hair, I try and stay away from the subject. One of the dangers of old age is that you pause in the middle of the track and you look back at all that the Lord has done for you and you say, I've done enough. That's enough victories and accomplishments and achievements for one life. I'm going to turn this over to the younger folks and I'm going to go tour the country in an RV just when you become valuable to us. You want to go tour the country in an RV. you got all the wisdom, all that ability, all that skill, and you bury your talents in the middle of the field because you're living off the past victories. I've served the Lord in this way and I've done this and I've got that. That's looking back. You need to look forward. When are you going to be stopped? When are you going to be done with your race? When you die. When your heart stops beating, when I do your funeral, then I will let you know that you're now done with the race. But until that time, don't stop running. Don't ever think I'm too old to learn. I'm too old to grow. I'm too old to serve. I'm too old to witness. I'm too old to study. You never think that. Never ever. So this applies not only to the successes of our Christian life, but also to the failures. You know, the churches are filled with people who are absolutely embittered because of some experience they had at a different church five years ago, and they still have not got over it. It debilitates you. It debilitates you. I don't do a whole lot of pastoral counseling, but people do ask me, do you do counseling? Do you do a lot of counseling? I say, well, I actually do a lot of counseling. I do from 1045 to 12 o'clock every Sunday morning for an hour. That's what we do here. This is group counseling. It's the Bible and you and me and God. He shows up and we do group counseling. The good news is I don't charge you $75 an hour each to do that. It should be, but I don't charge you that. That's counseling. Now, in the very little bit of counseling that I do outside of Sunday mornings, even though I've done a little bit, let me tell you something. I have spent countless hours in counseling sessions with people dealing with issues that should have been dealt with 5, 10, 15, and 20 years ago. And they still have not got over it. They're dealing with something their wife said or their husband said or somebody did to them or a bad experience they had in the church 
or whatever it is. Listen, you can't be debilitated by past failures. Did you fail? Fine. Confess it, get up, and get on with it. Did you miss an opportunity? Did you make a mistake? Did you fall flat on your face? Did you miss a hurdle and land spread eagle in the middle of the track? Okay, confess it, deal with it, and get on with it. But keep running forward. And don't be debilitated by past mistakes or sins or events or circumstances. They have no bearing on today at all. So leave those behind you. Don't think about them. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, with a singularity of focus, I am continually, in its present tense, forgetting all of the things that are on the course behind me. Mistakes, failures, missed opportunities, crashes and burns, all of that, and I keep on pressing on toward that goal. Now, don't overapply this. Don't overapply this. Let me give you an example of overapplying this. You say to somebody, I got into a bad business deal, lost a lot of money, so I'm just going to declare bankruptcy and I'll walk away from all my obligations because Pastor Jim said, forget about it, just keep pressing forward. No. Don't think to yourself, well, I may be married and divorced three or four times, but I'm just going to forget all of that. I'm moving on to the next woman. No, you're not. That's over-applying this. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about using it as an excuse for sin. Oh, I can just sin and then forget about it and press on. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about looking back on the things in your Christian life and using them as an excuse for self-reliance, self-satisfaction, or withholding effort in pursuing the prize. You've got to have single singularity of focus, singular focus, a selective forgetfulness, and third, a stretching forward. Paul says, the things that are behind me, I'm continually forgetting, and I keep on pressing on, and I reach forward. The word doesn't mean simply to extend your hand, like you might reach into the shelf and grab something out of the cabinet in your, in your kitchen. The word was an athletic term. It's a very vivid term, a very colorful term. And the word referred to the act of a runner in the final and decisive stages of his race, stretching forward with his hand outstretched and every muscle tensed and exerting all of his effort in a close race to be the one to grab the prize first. That's what it refers to. Not simply stretching out, but exerting all of my effort in stretching out, straining with every muscle and tendon and sinew of my body with all of the effort and energy that I have to be the one to grab the prize. You reach forward. You exerting that kind of effort in Christ-likeness? Because being Christ-like and pursuing the prize requires effort. And you say, Jim, that's easy for you to do. You're a pastor. Hey, it's not no easier for me than it is for you. The easy thing for me is to get up and not read my Bible. The easy thing for me is to go the whole day without praying. The easy thing for me is to be very lazy. That comes easy. But for all of us, it requires discipline and exertion. Singular focus, selective forgetfulness, and a stretching forward. Now, there are two questions that come up. One of them I raised last Sunday, and let me close by answering these two questions. The first question is, if I am guaranteed Christ-likeness when I die and go to heaven, then doesn't that give me an excuse to be a little apathetic toward it here? In other words, if I'm guaranteed justification, if I'm guaranteed righteousness, and I have righteousness right now, and Christ-likeness is guaranteed, and my glorification, which is yet future, is spoken of as a past event, and that is a guaranteed thing for me because I'm righteous in Christ, if I am truly secure in my salvation, then does that not tempt me toward apathy and toward lethargy and want, make me want to sort of cool the jets a little bit? Well, it might do that for you, but it shouldn't do that for you. Biblically, it shouldn't do that for you. 
Why? Did it do that for Paul? No. In fact, it's just like working out your salvation. The fact that God guarantees you the outcome is an incentive for you to put forth the effort. So just because it is God who works in me to will and to do for His good pleasure, and since everything God does cannot fail, that encourages me to put forth all of the effort I can to do that thing which God guarantees me is going to happen. So it doesn't produce apathy in me whatsoever or lethargy. It actually produces in me an incentive to pursue it even harder. The second question, if we cannot have perfection this side of eternity, then why should I pursue it? Right? Why don't I just wait until I die? Then I'll be Christ-like, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, perfectly sanctified, just like Christ. If I can't have it here, why pursue it? What kind of a fool goes after something he he knows he can't get? Well, for one, because we're told to. That should be enough. But second, we pursue perfection and Christ-likeness not because we ever expect to attain to it in this life, but we pursue it because that is what we are destined for. That is what God has promised us. That is what we're going to be. And we pursue it not because we think we can attain all of it, but because we want to taste what we will ultimately receive and have. And there's a third reason that we should pursue that which we cannot ultimately have here. And that is because, and I don't mean this to sound pragmatic, and I don't mean this to sound uh, self-serving, but it might to some of you, it's because it is of a benefit to us. Who would argue that Paul was not benefited by his exertion of effort? Who would argue that Paul would have been better off to just sort of cool his jets and hang out in Antioch and really not pursue any of his activities and just sort of sit back and wait for Christ's likeness to come when he died? 1 Timothy 4, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Because bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for this age and also for the life to come. Your pursuit of godliness and your discipline toward godliness actually, listen, affects your eternity. There is a benefit from what you do here that you derive not only in this life, but also for all of eternity. Which one of us thinks that we're going to sit in heaven and say, you know, I wish I would have taken it a little easier on the old earth. I wish I would have just cooled off a bit and not been so passionate in my pursuit of godliness on the old earth because I really don't see any benefit to it here. None of us would say that. Because instinctively we know that if you pursue godliness, it will you will reap the rewards in this life and also, Paul says, for the life which is to come you will be amply rewarded in eternity. I don't know what form that's going to take. The Bible doesn't say. But we are told that our pursuit of godliness here will affect the, reluctant to use the word quality, but that's kind of the idea of our eternity. So we've looked at the mindset of the runner. We've looked at the manner of our running. And we will save the mark toward which we run for next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that You call us to holiness. We thank You that You give us the grace day by day to be conformed into the image of Christ. And if we fall down in that, it is, of course, our fault. It is not that Your grace is not sufficient. It is that we fail to apply and appropriate that grace to the fullest extent that we ought to. We confess to You our failings with the understanding that it does not affect our righteousness in heaven, but only our sanctification here. And we pray, O God, that you would give to us the grace to pursue godliness 
Godliness with contentment, godliness which is great gain, godliness which will benefit us here and for eternity, and give us the grace to discipline ourselves to that end. May we be a congregation of this one thing I do, Christians, to pursue Christ-likeness and the knowledge of Him to the fullest extent of our ability, that You might be glorified through us and that we might know the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.